The investigation into Emily Demick's murder wasn't an easy one. At least not for Bert Shaw, who was convinced Emily had left her dark past behind and was living an honest life with him in their home in Camden. The police asked him several rather uncomfortable questions, ranging from Emily's past as a sex worker named Phyllis to how they met and decided to live together. It was clear during their questioning that Burr had no reason or motivation to ever hurt Emily. When they first met, Emily was working the streets, and Burr offered to give her a good, comfortable life if she ever left the profession. Some people, however, don't want to be rescued from their lives and enjoy the situation, even if it seems unconventional to others. Bert didn't know Emily had returned to the rising sun, or if he did, he pushed it away and tried to convince himself otherwise. But there were definite signs, signs that Emily couldn't always get rid of. Whether it was a little bit of a mess left behind, or the lingering smell of tobacco, it didn't take the police long to clear Bert of any suspicion. Several people had seen him at the station that night and everyone knew he adored Emily Dimmick. In the end, it had to be one of her clients. Not that it narrowed down the list by much. A few other things were made clear during the investigation. For one, Emily definitely had sex a few hours before her death. The way she was left in the bed, it was obvious she knew the murderer, and had fallen asleep right next to him. The killer had slashed her throat nearly to the bone while she was still sleeping. The police looked into her client list and started nightly patrols of the neighborhood. Some went into the Eagle to scope out the kind of men who frequented the bar and see whether any of them knew of Emily, or rather, Phyllis. It turns out they did. She was a regular companion to the lonely around Camden Town. And if nobody else noticed this, the bar staff certainly did. It didn't take the police long to track down Robert Percival Roberts, the ship's cook, who was the last official client Emily had been with before her murder. Understandably, Roberts was terrified To a man who had spent his whole life at sea and never heard a fly, this line of questioning about a gruesome murder would alarm anybody. Still not clear of suspicion, Robert stumbled his way through the inquiry, but provided as much information as he could. It seemed the night Emily found the letter, which she later tossed into the fire. She confided in Roberts about her most difficult and possessive client, Robert Wood. She never took his name, but her anxiety and nervousness about the one client were obvious to Roberts, and he knew she had been called to the Eagle the following night. He had also seen her postcard collection and found the handwriting on one matching the letter she burned, and he described the postcard to the police. Beyond that, There wasn't much he could help with, but it did offer the police another lead. 
After poking through Emily and Bert's fireplace and finding nothing but charred paper, they turned to her extensive postcard collection, which had been left in a mess in her bedroom. They rifled through the entire thing and didn't find the particular drawing Roberts described, a rising sun. Throughout this process, the police continued to question her clientele, and all of them seemed to have airtight alibis. It was almost as if she had done this to herself and left the room in disarray to throw off the cops. Of course, Emily had no reason to kill herself, so it made no sense to even consider this as a possibility. The trail was beginning to run cold, the police had questioned every possible person at this point, all except Robert Wood. Robert Wood came from a wealthy and influential family, and understandably, he did not want to be recognized or seen together with prostitutes. For that reason, he'd always give a false identity or keep a low profile. Nobody at the Eagle could point the police to him, so questioning him, was too far-fetched an idea. It was also 1907, a time when fingerprinting, blood sampling, and forensic science were impossible. The blood in the sink and her personal belongings, strewn all over the place, would have been evidence enough to zero in on a culprit and lock them away. But at this time, all the police could use was physical, observable facts and eyewitness accounts. So at this point, the police only knew Emily had left the Eagle with a man on September 11th as seen by several witnesses in the bar. Nobody could tell who the man was, but they knew he was a regular, whoever he was. He was desperate to stay under the radar. It didn't seem like anything could be done. The headlines reported on the crime painting a picture of the dark and twisted side of London, rife with single men, immoral women, and deadly encounters. Caught in the middle of the storm was Bert, who had to not only contend with the death of his lover, but the words being said about her in the media. Staying in the Camden home after what happened was too much for Bert to handle. His once happy home had turned into a place of lies and deceit. Their shared bed was the equivalent of a brothel. He couldn't stomach the thought of ever going into that room again. Bertram Shaw had to move. As he packed up his entire life into boxes and suitcases, he opened one of Emily's drawers to clean it out. Somewhere in the folds of all the skirts and blouses was a postcard. It had the illustration of a rising sun. September 29th, 1907. The people of London couldn't get enough of Emily Dimmock. Her case was the talk of the town, and it seemed everybody was invested in the ongoing investigation of her death. Londoners ran to their front doors in robes and slippers every morning to fetch the paper and thumb through them 
for the latest updates. And on this day, there was finally new information. No, the killer hadn't been caught, but there was a new piece of evidence the police could finally use. A postcard with some writing on it, signed by Alice, with the illustration of a rising sun. The article accompanying the image stated that the person who wrote this postcard also sent her a letter inviting her to the Eagle on September 11th, which she burned soon after. The article also ended with a plea. The police, seemingly lost at this point, offered a 100-pound reward to anyone who could identify the writing on the postcard. It felt like a desperate throwaway attempt at finding someone. Anyone. But nobody came forward. The people of London had assumed the police were desperate, and the case had gone cold. So they all moved on with their lives. All except one. Ruby Young, a woman about the same age as Emily Dimmock, couldn't help but recognize the distinct way the T's were crossed and the A's were rounded. The writing was all too familiar. She was desperate to say something because she now understood what had actually been going on. We go back to September 20th, 1907. Robert Wood sets up a meeting with his ex-girlfriend, Ruby Young, and asks her to be his alibi for the night of September 11th. He asks her to tell people they had been regular partners and always saw each other on Monday and Wednesdays, and they were in love. Ruby couldn't understand why at the time, but she agreed all the same. When she saw the postcard published in the paper, however, things clicked. A few days after, she confided in a close friend about the postcard, Robert Wood's handwriting, and the possible connection. Her friend had an acquaintance who worked with the police. News travels fast, and before long, the police were knocking on Ruby's door. Ruby Young started dating Robert Wood in 1905, while Wood was still meeting with Emily. Ruby also dabbled in sex work, but she gave up that life completely when she met and fell in love with Robert. It was bliss for a few months, after which Robert began to act odd. Ruby had every reason to suspect he was cheating, and he was, ironically, with another sex worker. In the summer of 1907, Ruby Young left Robert Wood. He pleaded with her to be taken back and forgiven, but she had moved on, cutting all ties with the man. After a few months of silence, it seems Ruby received a telegram from Wood, asking to meet her. Hoping time may have healed wounds and fixed him, she decided to agree. They met in a restaurant, and for a moment it was like old times, laughing and chatting, catching up like old friends. Ruby felt a bit of hope for the relationship. Robert, though, was a transactional man. He said he wished they'd never broken up and wanted to get back together. 
and in the same breath, he asked for a favor. Should anybody ever question her about him, she should say they were together and had been together every Monday and Wednesday for months now. It was a big ask, but Ruby agreed. Robert had managed to spin the story like he was an innocent bystander in the pub where Emily was last seen, and Ruby bought it. Perhaps she knew Robert had a dark side to him and chose to ignore it, or maybe she really did believe it. Whatever it was, she still left that restaurant a little confused. Why did Robert even know Emily? Why would the police care to question him if he had never been with her? Eight days later, though, her worst fears were realized on the front pages of the morning newspaper. Having been with Robert for months, she liked to think she knew him. She had letters from him that looked the same. It was obviously his handwriting, and he had lied about never being with Emily intimately. So, what else had he lied about? More importantly, what else was he capable of? Because if Wood could kill Emily Dimmock for whatever she did to antagonize him, nothing would stop him from hurting Ruby too. Her head swimming with theories and anxiety, she sent a telegram to Robert, asking to meet immediately. That afternoon, Robert stopped by Young's apartment, some kind of explanation for the postcard already prepared. When she raged at him, he provided his defense. He did meet Emily, once. In the Eagle, when she recognized him as an artist and handed him a postcard she was carrying with her, she asked him to draw something for her, anything, and write a note she could treasure. With all the noise in the bar, and with four or five drinks in him, he scribbled something and promptly forgot about the whole encounter. Once again, Ruby wanted to believe him. She wanted to believe Robert was a changed man and ready to fully commit to her. He asked her again to tell people they were together Wednesday night, and Ruby agreed. However, something ate at her. Part of her wanted to believe Robert had changed, but another part knew he was a dark and twisted man. After contemplating for days, on October 4, 1907, Ruby Young confided in her close friend about everything that had happened in the past three weeks. She had gone about this rather strategically. The friend had a cousin who worked in the police and was actively looking into Emily Demick's case. Technically, Ruby didn't go to the police or say anything. When the police landed up at her doorstep, practically all the puzzle pieces put together, she merely confirmed what they knew. She produced the letters Robert Wood had written her in 1905, and the writing on them matched the postcard perfectly. October 4th, 1907, late evening. The police placed Ruby outside Robert Wood's office in King's Cross, setting up a chance meeting between the two so they could nab him. Not much later, 
Robert left his office and was pleasantly surprised to see Ruby waiting for him. On the way to grab dinner, the police ambushed the couple and forced Wood away from Ruby. Wood didn't put up a fight as he was arrested and taken to the station. In fact, he stuck to his story. He didn't know Emily. He just made her a little sketch and forgot about it. That story, however, changed quickly after a few lines of questioning. In the final episode of this series, we're going to look into the trial of Robert Wood and some new key statements of witnesses and figure out exactly what happened to Emily Dimmick. Until then, thank you for listening.